We're going to finish up Luke tonight. So I'd like to start on Luke 13, verses 10 through 20. So Luke 13, 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Yeshua saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Yeshua had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Okay, so you'll have another healing of a man on the Sabbath in Luke 14. So you have bracketed healing on the Sabbath in both cases. And in both cases, of course, the religious authorities get grumpy about it. I take a couple of things from this. One of the things that I get from that is that healing is a part of the kingdom. When the kingdom of God is fully here, healing should be routine. The other thing is healing on the Sabbath. If you were a doctor and your profession was medicine and you lived in Israel, you should close your office on the Sabbath. In other words, you should not schedule surgery, you should not schedule office hours or any of those kinds of things. So in that sense, the people in the synagogue are correct because most medical conditions are not emergencies. I mean, this gal had had that spirit for 18 years, so why can't he heal her on the first day? In other words, why does he have to do it there? So you can sort of see their thought process. This is not a medical emergency. You know, she's not laying on the ground bleeding to death and somebody has to rush up to her and stop the bleeding and that kind of thing. But the other part of that is Yeshua, by his profession, is not a doctor. It is not the case that he has a shingle hung out where people would come to him and pay him money to be healed. He does heal everywhere he goes, but that seems to be spontaneous by the power of God flowing through him very different from saying, well, I'm a doctor and it's okay now to heal on the Sabbath, so I guess I'll have office hours on Shabbat. That's not what's being taught here, that a doctor having office hours on Shabbat would be okay. What's being taught is that the power of God is able to flow through people for healing on the Sabbath. The other thing that's interesting here is this disabling spirit that she has. She's bent over double and can't straighten up. The idea that a spirit can do something like that to you, I was listening to somebody, somebody who had been in Africa, and his comment was that you see this kind of stuff in Africa all the time. And we would put that down to superstition, but one of the things about Africa is that there is a tremendous amount of animism which is animal spirit religion. Probably most people know that from the American Indian, you know, where you had a totem and you were a bear or you were a wolf or you were this, that, or the other thing. So there's quite a bit of animism there. 
and which doctors are very much alive and well. And one of the things that apparently happens, at least according to this person I was listening to, is that when Christian missionaries go there on crusades, they will very often run into situations like this where people have got an unclean spirit and have been bound up like this for decades. And when they're released, they're able to stand up and walk. So this stuff does, in fact, occur in the world today. So now I'm all the way down to verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, so what he is saying now in a parable is in response to what he just did in this situation. So he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the parable of the mustard seed also shows up in the Matthew parables, the kingdom parables. When we went through the kingdom parables, what we said is that a mustard seed is not intended to produce a tree. Mustard is an herb, it's a bush, it's a low-lying shrub. So a mustard seed that has gone and produced a tree is unnatural. And the idea that birds would come to nest in this, if you read the Matthew parables, it starts off with the parable of the sower, you know, where a sower went and sowed seeds, and one of the things that happened to some of the seed is the birds came and plucked it up. So, and the seed, of course, is the word of God. And the idea then that the birds are stealing the word of God indicates that birds are not good. So the next place that birds are mentioned in the Matthew set is here in the parable of the mustard seed. So the idea that birds are evil in the first parable, the principle of expositional consistency is that birds will continue to be bad as you're going along in a given conversation. So at the beginning of the conversation in Matthew, birds are bad. It is not the case that they have suddenly turned good by the time we get to the mustard bush. So the interpretation that we went through for this parable is that the kingdom of God, or if you want to say parentheses, the church, is not intended to become this great Baroque edifice that has lots and lots of places for birds to hide. So what he's talking about here in context is about the church as it exists in Israel. The synagogue, the church, the temple, the religious structure that exists in Israel. Side note, my own bunny trail, synagogues do not show up in the Old Testament. The place of worship and the place of sacrifice is Jerusalem, wherever God puts his tabernacle. As I mentioned before, Ken and Carmen have lent us a series of DVDs on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the things that the lecturer said there, and I have only his word to take for it, and I mean, I don't know that he's wrong, I'm just saying I don't have any other data except this lecture, was that the Pharisees 
took and moved a whole lot of temple ritual out and put it in the synagogue. So the business of washing your hands before you eat, the business of prayers and so forth at set times during the day, those were all temple rituals. And what the Pharisees did is they took them out of the temple and they brought them into the synagogue. And the synagogue, in that sense, is a Pharisaic construct. So the idea here that you have this sort of two religious organizations running in parallel in Israel at the time of Yeshua. You've got the temple, which is ordained by God. And you have all of the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff associated with the temple. But you've also got this parallel structure, which is run by the Pharisees, which is the synagogue system. Here he is in a synagogue. The context here is he's in a synagogue. And the Pharisees in the synagogue, when he heals this woman who is crippled up with a demon, their reaction is, you shouldn't do this. And of course, he shames them and says, you would loose your animal to go drink on the Sabbath. Why shouldn't I loose this woman who's been bound by Satan? So as a hypothesis here, as we look at the follow-on parable, which is the parable of the mustard seed, and you have in the parable of a mustard seed a seed that has grown all out of proportion to what it was intended to be. So what you then have in context are these very large, very Baroque synagogue organizations in which are hiding birds. And it very well may be saying that this parallel structure that has been set up by the Pharisees, which is the synagogue system, is in fact corrupt. That may be what he's speaking against, as opposed to the entirety of Jerusalem, which is sort of what I have always thought he was speaking against. The Bible, God, sets up one place. There's one place to sacrifice where I put my name, period. The synagogue system, as we see it in the New Testament, and of course as we see it in Judaism today, is nowhere mentioned in Scripture, of course, except the New Testament as an ongoing institution. It, it just, it, you know, there isn't any history or anything, it's just mentioned that he goes to a synagogue. The other thing that may be in play here, one of the things that the Dead Sea community had was they regarded the temple as being corrupt, and indeed they regarded all of Jerusalem as being corrupt, and not a place to worship anymore. The temple was mostly under the control of the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very powerful, but they were not the ones who ran the temple. Speculation and hypothesis here. Maybe one of the driving factors for the establishment of the synagogues under the Pharisees was the tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees with respect to the temple. That's all speculation. I don't know that that's got any fact. All I'm doing is extrapolating from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which indicate that the Essenes, or whoever the community there was, regarded Jerusalem and the temple as being polluted and no longer acceptable for worship. Having said all that, the parable of the mustard seed for me takes on a slightly different possible context. And what he may be talking against here is rabbinic Judaism, which has, as I say, set up a parallel system to the temple in many respects. They didn't, they didn't sacrifice, but they were certainly a competing center of spirituality. And I'm not on verse 20. And he said again, 
to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The idea here, as you all know, is leaven consistently in the Bible represents sin. And you have a woman who is hiding the leaven in the dough so the thing becomes completely leavened. And I think that corresponds with Thyatira in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 2. I think it's Thyatira, the woman Jezebel, Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The, the church at Thyatira is the parable of the leaven 50 years later, maybe. And again, obviously, leaven represents sin, and the idea of a woman hiding sin in the flower so it all permeates exactly correlates with what's happening in Thyatira, where you have somebody in there who is teaching and seducing the people to sexual immorality. All right, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip forward to chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Yeshua responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So we have a parallel situation. We had a woman being healed on the Sabbath, and here he's asking the same question about healing on the Sabbath. The first time when he healed the woman, he didn't ask anybody anything. He just called her over and healed her. And then he got upbraided by the synagogue authorities for doing it. So this time, as he's going to heal a man with dropsy, he first asks the question. So one way to look at this is he has already given the lesson where he said, it is legal to heal on the Sabbath. And now he's coming back and is about to heal again. So he said, now, is it illegal to heal on the Sabbath? Yeah, what do you guys say? driving the point home. So verse 3 again. And Yeshua responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent, having <laughs> probably heard the, heard the lesson. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Some manuscripts have a donkey. The manuscript that my translation came from has a son. So which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Another thing occurs to me as we're going through this, as I said earlier on, somebody with dropsy is not an emergency. Somebody with a demon is not an emergency. And Yeshua could just as easily have said, come see me on the first day and I'll get you right fixed up. He didn't. In fact, I don't know that he ever did say to somebody, come back and see me later. He always healed them on the spot. I regard that as one of the signs that the kingdom of God has come near you. There is healing on the spot. By exporting the temple rituals to the synagogue and diffusing it in a sense, the Pharisees seem to have lost track of the purpose of the kingdom of God, which is making people whole. Because remember, what's the first thing that God says to Israel after they come up out of the Red Sea? I am the God who heals you. That's his first statement 
to Israel as they come up on the far side of the Red Sea. If you follow my commandments, I will put none of the diseases on you. I put on the Egyptians because I am the God who heals you. So the idea of the kingdom of God being a place of healing is very scriptural, but in defense of the Pharisees now. You can go to many mainline Christian churches and they have lost the concept of biblical healing. They don't believe that it is for today. They believe that those were the miracles in the time of Yeshua, those were miracles in the time of the apostles, but that's all gone now. And you can very well see in the Pharisees, what do you mean this is a place of healing? It doesn't work anymore. In their defense, losing track of the fact that a place of God should be a place of healing may be something that has been going for a long time, as it has in much of the church today. So they don't really believe that the church is where you go to get healed. Don't get me wrong, there are lots and lots of divisions of the body of Christ that absolutely believe in healing. But there are also a lot of them that don't. And they tend to be very big, very mainline denominations. You can speculate on why, but one of my speculations has always been the Bible proclaims healing. If I stand up here and I say to somebody, in the name of Yeshua, you be healed, and he falls over dead, what does that do to my faith? Anybody ever read Don Quixote? There's a scene in Don Quixote where he's making himself a helmet, and he's making it out of cardboard. You know, makes it out of cardboard and gets it all painted up and smacks it with a sword and it smashes. So the next time he makes his helmet out of cardboard again, but he's very careful not to hit it with a sword. And then he puts on his helmet and rides off. So the idea of being very careful not to put your faith to a critical test is very human. I know what the Bible says, but if I don't ever try and heal somebody, it can say that, and I can believe it, but I don't ever have to put it to the test, because if it doesn't work, what does that say to the rest of my theological framework? Gee, if healing doesn't work, what else doesn't work? This is very human. I'm very sympathetic with these guys. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, all right, now remember again the context. He is gone to dine on a Sabbath at a Pharisee's house. So verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You've got to understand the circumstance. This is the hierarchy of the local synagogue. They are important people. They have invited this itinerant rabbi in to have dinner with them, and they regard themselves as the creme de la creme of Jewish society. So in the world to come, they expect that they will have places of honor, just as they have places of honor in Jerusalem or, or wherever this is now. And what Yeshua is saying to them is, hey guys, 
don't assume that you're going to have a place of honor. What you want to do is you want to assume that you are going to be the least of those invited to the feast. And when you get into the kingdom of God, should you do so, you want to approach it as if you were the last one in with the fires of hell nipping at your heels. And then, if in fact your works merit it, God will move you up. But don't trade on your position in the synagogue and assume that that's where you're going to be in the world to come. There's a a movie from the 40s, stock character, very aristocratic, snooty, etc. And he's dying of cancer. Has been a religious all of his life. You know, no connection with any religion. Very well connected socially. And so as he's getting ready to die, he calls the local cardinal, who is known among his circle of friends. And he asks the local cardinal to come in and bless him before he dies. And the local cardinal comes in and prays with him and stuff. And the cardinal leaves. And this guy then is talking to his wife, son, daughter, some relative there. He says, now I'm assured I am going to be escorted into heaven by a prince of the church. So the idea that all this stuff that we do in our religion is going to cut some kind of ice in heaven is not warranted. So now we're going to come back to Luke 13.22 through the end of the chapter. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, understand that asking about those who are saved is not necessarily talking about salvation in the Baptist sense, going to heaven or going to hell. But we're talking about, in this context, he is a candidate to be the Messiah, and as a candidate to be the Messiah, they would be expecting him to restore the kingdom of David, and that's going to be an arduous process. And so the question is, salvation in that sense, not necessarily salvation in the eternal sense. And he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, that's the key to this. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And workers of evil, in a biblical sense, are those who oppress the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, which is to say the defenseless in society. You can add the poor onto that too. Wicked people are those who deal dishonestly, do evil things, and especially oppress those who are weaker than they are. That's what the biblical definition of evil is. We are not talking about forgetting to tie your tzitzit and walking out on the street one day. We are not talking about the occasional ham sandwich. We're talking about those who are doing evil. And one of the things that I think is an error in most of Christendom is this idea that all sins are created equal. 
I don't buy that. It is not biblical. Because in Scripture you have a wide range of punishment for various kinds of sins. Some sins require stoning. No parole. If you murder somebody or commit adultery, theoretically, there's no parole. You can't confess and beg mercy or anything like that. You just get stoned. In practice, I don't know that they did that, but that's what the Scripture says. There are other sins where you pay a fine. Restore what you took. Any number of things can happen to you short of death. So what he's saying here is he is walking among Israel right now. And these people are saying, hey, we did lunch together. You taught on our streets. We know you. You are one of us. And then he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity or evil. So he is not talking about the entire nation Israel here. He is talking about the evildoers. And in context, above and below, what he's talking about are the synagogue authorities who are apparently oppressive. 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are least who will be first and some are first who will be least. All through the Gospels in his arguments, especially with the Pharisees, there is this assumption on the part of the Pharisees that we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, we are in, especially since they keep the letter of the Torah. And in that time and in that place, they did. Remember, he upbraids them, for example, for tithing, mint and cumin. And yet you neglect the important things, which is caring for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. These folks are righteous in their own eyes. They are blood sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as far as they're concerned, they're in and nobody else is. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey guys, you're going to really be surprised, those of you who are working evil, because not only are you not in, but you're going to see other people in. And furthermore, there are going to be people who are brought from the four corners of the earth that you don't even know who are going to be in. And you're going to be out. Most of the commentaries I've read on this talk about people from the east, west, north, and south as being Gentiles. And that may be true. It also may be the dispersed of Israel who have been lost. Or it may be both. doesn't say. It's just people other than the ones he's talking to there. Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nobody, has any, nobody that I've read anyway has any idea what the business is with the fox. Because it shows up other places, you know, foxes have dens, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The other part of that is, we've talked about this before, you have this messianic figure that is working his way down the length of Israel. He's drawing a crowd. People are regarding him as a messianic figure. So for Herod to regard him as a rival that needs to be dealt with is absolutely in character. 
So for people to come and warn him and say, hey, if you show up in Jerusalem, you're going to have trouble, is certainly very plausible. One of the commentaries I read said that this, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course, doesn't mean that he's three days out from the crucifixion. What it seems to mean is, is an idiom. In other words, I've got a set schedule. I'm going to work today, tomorrow, and then the third day I'm done. Not as in a literal three days, but it's in my day timer. And it's going to happen in order, is the sense of it according to that commentary. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way, and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch One of the things he's saying is, over the centuries, God has sent you prophets, and you have hardened your hearts, you have stoned them, sent them away, and at any time I was willing to gather you, but you wouldn't. And in my mind, this goes clear back to Sinai. Remember, we've talked about this in the past, that Sinai was intended to be the consummation of a wedding, and the groom, God, was going to speak his word into the heart of his bride, Israel. And the bride would not. And so, from that time forward, Israel's grasp on righteousness has always been a sometimes thing. They have gone into exile. He sent some of them in exile at different times, all because that original writing of the word on their heart did not take.